Jesus had just healed a man who had been lame. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. And on this day, he heals this man simply by speaking to him, telling him to stand up. Incredible work that's done. But the man heads off, as Jesus tells him to, with a, his mat. His mat he used to lay down on and he used to sleep there and live there because he couldn't ever get up. And now he's got it under his shoulder, under his arm rather, and he begins walking amongst the crowds and he is seen by some religious leaders. And they are very upset that this guy would be doing this because he's carrying something on the Sabbath day. Doesn't take long until they hear that he was been healed on the Sabbath day, and they get even more exercised by the fact that somebody had the gall to heal someone on the Sabbath. And finally, when they confront Jesus, and in his explanation as to why it is that he's working on the Sabbath, he makes the connection that he is equal with God, and that, blasphemy, is something that brings them to a fever pitch of fury. They believe not only that they have God's law, they can look at it and go, aha, see, look, here's where you've broken it. But they also, these particular Jews, believed that they had been chosen by God to judge the peoples. They were in the position of spiritual leadership, and so they were the ones who were supposed to step up and say something. That's what they do. Jesus responds to these Jewish leaders. And what we're going to read through today is a part of his response, what it is that he's saying to these Jewish leaders. And he's going to say things about himself, not just in a present sense, hey, this is true about me now. He's about to tell these Jewish leaders what he's going to do and accomplish in the future. And so you and I get to hear Jesus in his own words explain not only things about himself at that moment, but things that we're looking forward to even ahead of our own day. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 5. I'm going to read through verses 25 through 29. Then, as usual, we'll go back through and unpack a verse or two at a time and a few uh, observations by the time we get to the end. Starting in verse 25, I'll read this out loud. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Lord, please be with us as we go through this text. Uh, Lord, My brothers and sisters here who are hearing this, and any guests who may be with us, Lord, we ought not care what a man has to say about any of this, what a preacher, what I have to say, what a commentator or any other person. What we want to know is what Jesus says about himself, and we want to understand that. So, Lord, I pray that you would just help uh, help this teaching right now, Lord. Please equip uh, me by your Holy Spirit to say what is true. Um, Father, thank you for being with me in the preparation of this. Um, But as my friends are hearing this this morning, I pray that they would be greatly served uh, by this and that you would do a work in their hearts and this would be meaningful and it would help them in the way that they relate to you. So please do this mighty work we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Let's go back to the beginning of our, our text today in verse 25. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
Now, the way that Jesus is talking here, he's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual life, spiritual death to spiritual life, not going from being physically dead to physically alive, but spiritually so. And we'll see in the, in the upcoming text, he will speak about physical death, but here it's spiritual. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's talking about conversion. Each person that exists is made up of a body and a soul. People are made up of this. That means we have a material sense and an immaterial sense. That's how we're comprised. And while we're born into this world physically alive, we come into this world in a state of spiritual death. That means our, our souls have not yet been come alive. We have a soul, but it is not counted as a soul with life, but as a soul with a spiritual kind of death. Every person that Jesus preaches to, he's preaching to somebody that could be called, biblically speaking, spiritually dead. I want to show you another place in the New Testament where we see this language. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, and you, believers, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So here, and we see many other places in the New Testament, where we go from a state of spiritual deadness, death, to spiritual life. That's what we all need. And how is it that one goes from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life? According to this text, look at the words with me. What is the difference? What is it that makes a person go from one state to the next? The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So that's what makes the change. Hearing of the voice of the Son of God. All spiritual life is only through Jesus Christ. It's the only way that a person can go from this kind of death to life. This is why Jesus says of himself multiple times that he is the well of life in some way or another. He's the resurrection and the life. He just said back in John 4 with the woman at the well that he was uh, the water of life. If you ask me, I'll give you living water. If you ask me, I would have have given this to you, that a well of eternal life would be springing up inside of you. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the source of eternal life. You can't get this eternal life any other way but through Jesus. And you need to know, he did not introduce this idea. He did not come along in his day, and uh, as he's getting ready to go be born on earth, uh, some angel goes, hey, don't forget to tell them about the life thing. No, this has always been the way that it's been said about this coming Messiah, the coming Christ. I want to show you a place back in Deuteronomy. This is where Moses is leading the people. He's the prophet for the people, and God foretells of another prophet who will come. And he says about this other prophet that the people must hear the voice of this other prophet and obey. And if they don't hear, they're going to remain in trouble. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. That means it's going to be a person from the Jewish line. Jesus was Jewish. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. 
And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So you see, even back in the Old Testament, we're told of this perfect coming Messiah, anointed one, prophet, who must be listened to. If you hear his voice and obey, you will live. When the gospel goes out, when the word of God is proclaimed, and when it has effect on the heart of the hearer, it's the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. In fact, Jesus even says that he's the good shepherd, and my sheep know my voice. This is why these Jews rejected Jesus. Were they hearing his voice? Well, in the literal sense, they heard it. But they didn't recognize him as coming from God because even though his works, his miracles, authenticated who he was, they did not have the ears, spiritually speaking, to hear his voice. And so while the sound hit their ears, their audio sensors, it did not go into their hearts. They had not heard the Son of God. They do not have this life. Jesus continues, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Father has life. And how does he have the life? It's in himself. Well, quickly, what does that mean? Well, the Father is the creator of life. He doesn't need to get life from anywhere else. He doesn't receive it. He doesn't go to the universal stores or supply house of life in order to draw upon those supplies to build what we see in creation. No, he speaks life into existence and he gives it to whomever he will. And as the father is the creator of life, so is the son. This is what John said right out of the gate, the beginning of this book. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So real quick, right off the bat, again, John is concerned to make sure that we know that this Jesus, he is God. He is the creator. All things come through him. Acts 3.15 even refers to Jesus as the author of life. So, So question. If the father is the author of life, and Jesus, the son, is the author of life, both are creator. They can be called creator. How does it work that we see it said, as the Father has life in himself, he has granted the Son also to have life in himself? How is it now the the Son is a recipient of this life in and of himself? Simply this means that in eternity past, this is Trinity language, when the Father, Son, and Spirit established the plan of redemption, even prior to human history beginning, it was determined that the Son would be the one who would bring this new life to God's people. It speaks to the way in which the Father and the Son relate. Theologians might refer to this kind of uh, 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 context as the Son that proceeds from the Father eternally. 1 John chapter 5, this same author, John, will write in a letter later something that says very similarly, uh, 1 John 5, 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. This language is a reminder to us that there is 
No division in the Godhead. The only way you can have eternal life from the Father is through the Son. That's the way they planned it. If you've ever spent time with little kids, if you have little kids, you may have observed on occasion them playing adults against each other, especially mommy and daddy. I know this is happening whenever a kid comes into the room and I hear them whispering a request to mom. What are you asking over there? They're asking something that they know I would say no to, she would say yes to. Truth is, it's usually the other way in my house because I'm kind of the yes guy in my home. That's not the way it works in the Trinity. It's not that the Father has something special to give us apart from the Son. It's not that the Son has something to give us that's unique and distinct from the Father. And we're going to see the Spirit unpacked much later in John as Jesus gives clarity on how the Spirit's work plays out. No. It has been determined and planned that the offering of eternal life will come from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But the offering of eternal life is not the only role that the Father gives the Son. That's what he says next. There's something else that the Father grants to the Son. Not only does he grant him to give life, this eternal life, this born-again life, this status he's been talking about for chapters right now, not only does Jesus have the ability to heal bodies, earthly, they all know that, they don't doubt that, they just saw the guy walking away healed, but he has the ability to give eternal life. He goes, there's something else the Father has also given me that you Jewish leaders should well take note of. That's what he says next. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. He has given him authority to execute judgment. If you're a Greek guy here, you're looking at the words, the exact same word for granted in 26 is given in 27. It's coming from the father to the son and their relationship. The father has granted authority to the son. And this says almost the exact same thing that a few verses earlier it said in verse 22. We unpacked that last week a little bit. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And the summary point that I had made there is not that Jesus is saying we have two totally separate things we go and do, but in judgment it is that the Father will judge through the Son. And why? It says here, because he is the Son of Man. Interesting language. Why would it be that the second person of the Trinity would be the one to be the judge, to execute judgment? The answer given here is because he's the Son of Man, which highlights his humanity. The term Son of Man is used in the Old Testament well over a hundred times, and every single time it's referring to somebody in human form. One time in the book of Daniel, it's a title given, but it's a title given to somebody who's in human form form. Son of man. That's the point. The second member of the Trinity, Jesus, is man. He's the Savior, the chosen one. He's the anointed, the one and only perfect God-man. It is, and here's the point, it's especially fitting for the Son to be the judge because it is He who lived the perfect life on this earth. It's He who walked the walk. It's he who dealt with the temptations. It's he who faced the sufferings and the trials that all of us will have to face categorically, did it perfectly, and so it is especially fitting that he would be the judge. And it makes perfect sense as to why in the grand design, Father, Son, and Spirit, it would be the Son who'd be given that particular role. 
The Bible tells us that he will come to execute judgment. He's given him authority to execute judgment. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is that what Jesus is doing at this particular point amongst the people? The answer is, technically, no. He's not doing that at his first coming. At his first coming, he has an entirely different purpose in mind. If you don't know this, you need to know this about Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus comes into the earth two different times. One is passed to us. We celebrate Christmas. It was coming into the world, his life and ministry, all that we read about in the Gospels. That was his first coming. We call it his first advent, perhaps coming into the world. And there will be a second coming, a second advent of Jesus Christ. He will return. And the purposes for his coming, first and second, are working together, but they have distinct purposes. Once Jesus comes in the middle of human history to die for sin. And the second time at the end of human history for judgment. So when Jesus is telling these Jews here, not only to grant life, but the Son is also has the authority to execute judgment, that's what he's talking about. Jesus did not come the first time for judgment. It's not why he arrived. He didn't show up in order to, primarily, chiefly, someone needs to go down there and tell those Pharisees what for. That's not, that's not why he came the first time. He came to die for sins. I want to read for you Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. The elements of what I'm talking about are right here. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment, we'll unpack that in a little bit, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, this is first coming, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. First time, bearing sins of many. Second time, to rescue those for whom he bore the sins. First time he comes to deal with our sin. Second time, it'll be for judgment and rescue. Now, this does not mean, real quick here, when we say that Jesus did not come the first time for judgment, this doesn't mean that he didn't make judgments. It doesn't mean that he didn't show up and tell people what was right and wrong. It means that he didn't come with the judgment he will come with at the end. His purpose at first was salvation. Salvation from what? From future judgment, which he himself brings. Interesting. What's he the savior of? What's the, he's the savior from. Jesus came at first, to save us from the judgment he will bring at second. He will bring judgment on the world. You know, there are many people today, I think some Christians even perhaps struggle with this, but there are many people today that just cannot imagine Jesus in this way. They've got a picture of Jesus that they've picked up for one reason or another. Kind of that, you know, the, the, the passive, um, muted, uh, kind of uh, happy hippie type Jesus, you know, who never confronts sin, never deals, just loving and kind, never, never has anything other than those attributes at play. And it's hard for people to imagine him as an executioner. But that's what he says. And even if it doesn't compute for the mind of so many, 
This is what Jesus is saying. When he returns, he's going to come to do two things. The New Testament tells us repeatedly, when Jesus returns, it's to do two things. To reward those who believe in him and to punish those who don't. To reward those who believe in him, punish those who don't. That's rescue and judgment. Rescue and judgment. I want to show this to you in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. This is probably the most succinct place you'll find this in the Bible. And it's really helpful because Paul is concerned that we really understand what's going on here. The church at Thessalonica is enduring afflictions, persecution. He himself is in prison. He's been beaten and mocked and persecuted and ridiculed. And he's telling the Thessalonians, listen, I'm going through affliction, you're going through affliction, but you need to know this about Jesus' second coming. This is what he says. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Okay? So Jesus says when he returns, he'll judge everyone, starting with Satan and demons. We'll see that in other texts. But when he comes, it's for that purpose, rescue and punishment. Now, if, you're, if you're, uh, the gears in your head kind of click to a different, different gear, you start thinking end time stuff. Click. Some of you, for some people, when you start hearing end time stuff, you kind of click off. Others get all amped up and excited. We make this very simple for you here. All the major end times views agree, agree with what I just said. Okay. Premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial, it'll all pan out in the end. You know, that's you. Kind of. <laughs> all views agree... That just prior to the final estate, the new heavens and the new earth, Satan will organize one final confrontation against God's people, and Jesus will come to destroy him once and for all in judgment. All views agree on that. Bunch of particulars, differences, but that much we agree upon. I want you to consider who he's saying this to and why. Jesus is speaking to these Jews. These religious leaders, those who think we're the ones who've been told we should judge you for what you're doing. And what does he say? Nope. God has granted me to judge. You, oh, excuse me. You think you're here to judge me? I'm coming back to judge you. But Jesus goes on to say that there's something more terrifying than all of this for these particular Jews. Look look with me at verse 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. There's a lot to unpack here. I just want to make four observations. You can follow me in the order here. Four observations. And the first is this. The judgment that Jesus speaks about here is a future judgment. It's an eternal one. You'll notice Jesus says, an hour is coming. He said that same phrase two other times already in John, once in verse 24. We just read, like skipped over it pretty quick. Another time in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And in both of those other instances, he says, the hour is coming and is now here. He's talking about something that's future and present for him as he's saying it. 
This one, he doesn't give the present part. He's only talking future. This should be a quick indicator to us. This he's talking about is not yet here. And for the record, it's not yet here in our day either. People today often endure hardships as the temporary consequences of their sins. You know this. Even believers, redeemed of God, are disciplined by God, not for punishment, but for sanctification and suffering nonetheless. But the judgment that Jesus speaks of here is referring to something altogether future, final. It's not just karma. It's not just do bad, you'll have bad things happen. Do good, you'll have good things happen. It's not just, hey Jews, you're going to treat me poorly. Well, you're going to get it right here too. No, it's far more than that. It's not temporary, it's lasting. You see, these religious Jews were very familiar with God's judgment. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the stories. They had known about the times that the people had rebelled against God, and he brought famine, pestilence, wicked rulers. He brought oppressive nations to conquer them, some to even take them into exile. In fact, the present conditions that these particular Jews are living under in the Roman oppression is due in part to their rebellion against God. That was part of the overthrow. They know this very well. They get the judgment of God. That's their picture of it. But Jesus now makes it clear that the judgment he's talking about, that he has been granted authority to execute, is far greater than this temporary stuff. Not, that, not 70 years in exile, my friends. Not a heart stop beating. Not momentary affliction. For an hour is coming that everyone who endured that will be raised to a greater and more lasting judgment. Do you see how now that the warning that Jesus is leveling against these Jews is triply threatening? So first point, the judgment that Jesus speaks about here is future. And it's eternal. Second, in the end, Jesus does not merely judge spirits, but bodies. Spirits, but bodies. And I think he indicates that here by the tomb language. That those who hear the voice will come out of the tombs. Just as he comes out of the tomb. Just as Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Just as the dead uh, man who was the, the, the son of the widow at Nain sat up from his funeral bier. He tells them that this is going to happen. It'll be a physical when I, say, I mean literally, a physical, material resurrection. And again, this isn't something new that Jesus brings into history. This is foretold all the way back in Daniel. Daniel 12, verse 2, talks about this exact same thing. And many who, of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That language of the sleeping in the dust of the earth is a reminder again. It's literally those who are buried in the ground. They're going to come up out of the ground. That's the idea. Jesus then speaks of a bodily resurrection. Actual body, come out of the ground, resurrection. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you might remember 1 Corinthians 15 is a whole chapter devoted to this idea. Paul is really upset that there are some people circulating the idea that Christians will not be physically raised. Maybe some spiritual sense, clearly, because they're doing works for the dead and crazy things that are going on. They're like, oh, hold on. It's a literal, physical, material resurrection. And his argument that he uses there is, wasn't Jesus raised? 
Jesus didn't come out of the tomb spiritually, float through the walls like a ghost, and then go, hey, roll the stone away and look, that's my body, but here I am. No. The stone was rolled, he sits up, folds up the linen that was covering him, lays it down, and walks out of the tomb, physically, literally, bodily. He explained that we will come out of the tombs in the same way. That's what he's saying here. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And this is all. All will come to do this. Now, there's a few questions people have about this. My kids ask me questions about this kind of stuff all the time. Let me see if I can answer a couple of them, uh, what I think the Bible would give us to this. People might ask, what about somebody whose body's not together anymore after they die? Okay, decay over time, a person who drowned, their body disintegrates in the sea. Uh, what about the martyrs that were dismembered or burned or something like that? What do we do if it's not just a body in a casket comes up and out? How does it work? The Bible has no problem with this whatsoever. We need not worry about any of this. God has all of that figured out. We are promised that no matter what the physical and biological state of our body, we will be raised bodily. It's God himself who says about Adam, hey, you're going to die someday, and just like you came from dust, you're going back to the dust. You're going to be particles all over. You're going to be eaten by an animal. doesn't matter. He's got it all figured out. And it's not as though that was the rule that he established, and he forgot about it, and some angel's going to go, hey, remember the resurrection? We're in big trouble. We forgot about all these bodies. Oh, man. If only I had foreseen No, we're all going to be just fine. Here's how it works. The moment that a believer dies, they go in their soul, the immaterial part of themselves goes to be with the Lord in heaven right away. Jesus calls it paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise to be with the Lord. Absence in the body, absence from the body, no longer with your material self, present with the Lord, as Paul says. So the body stays here, the soul goes to be with God and remains with God. It's a paradise kind of place. It's a paradise kind of condition. And I've had people say before, well, it's it's soul sleep. People go to sleep and then they wake up and they're at the final judgment. They're at the end time. It doesn't work that way. Some have said that, well, as soon as you die, it's like you're transported in time, you know, because there's no time in heaven, so you're transported in time up to the final judgment. That's not true either. There is time in heaven. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, the Bible tells us that those souls who have died as martyrs, they are beneath the throne of God. Remember, it's not bodies, it's souls in Revelation 6. And what does it say about these souls? They cry out to God, how long, O Lord, must we wait for you to vindicate us? And what does God say? You must wait a little longer. See, they experience time just as we will experience time. All of creation, including heaven creation, is groaning, waiting for the final culmination of the end. All of it restoring again. Okay? This is why Paul can speak of those who have brothers and sisters in Christ who passed away. They are like those asleep because it's as innocuous as sleep. It's as harmless as sleep. Their physical bodies are on the ground. They're with the Lord and the day will come where body and soul will unite and all of us will experience that at the same time. And our resurrected bodies, as believers, will be made suitable for the new heavens and new earth. We can't age, we can't decay, sin, be hurt, be perfect. How perfect? 
What age will we be? How tall will we be? What, we, what characteristics will we retain? I have no idea. My kids ask me these questions all the time. It is a, it's a madhouse in the Sanford household when we talk about heaven because they have all these thoughts. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody will be bald probably because that's way easier to deal with. We don't know. But it'll be a resurrected body. It'll be a perfect body, perfectly suited for an Edenic, paradisical new heavens and new earth. That's the second point. In the end, Jesus does not merely judge spirits, but bodies. There will be a resurrection of the dead. And how many of the dead? How many will come out of the tombs? All. All will stand before him in judgment. That brings us to the third point. When they arrive there, there will be two types of resurrections. The resurrection unto eternal life and a resurrection unto judgment. That's it. Just those two. All of humankind will fall into one category or the other. Revelation 20 even tells us of a time when everyone who's ever died will be raised, and it makes it clear it's everyone without exception, small and great alike. Let me show you two other places in the New Testament, and then we'll go to that Revelation passage. Acts 24, 15, there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Jesus isn't making this up out of thin air. This is stuff that's all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. And Revelation 20 is where this exact same author, John, unpacks this even more. He tells us of a vision that he has. He calls it a revelation that he has. And he sees what happens at the very end. At the end, after Satan's released, at the end of the millennium, and he sets himself up against the people of God, and Jesus destroys him utterly once and for all. And right after that time, after Satan and the demons are judged in that way, now what we see happen is all of mankind stands before the white hot seat of judgment, the throne of Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says, what it says here in Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. That's Jesus. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. I think that's symbolic to be sure, but also probably some elements of literalism because the Bible does say that just as the flood, the global flood in the days of old rearranged the topography of the earth back then, at the coming of the new heavens and the new earth, fire will deluge and recreate in the same way. He goes on, and I saw the dead. See, those are those in the tombs. I saw the dead, great and small. Sorry to go slow, but great and small, that's a term used in Revelation and many places in uh, prophecy in the Old Testament to refer to every human, great and small. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. So I want you to imagine great white throne, This is what he's seeing in his vision. Great white throne, throngs of people standing. They just came out from the dead. They were raised from the dead to this spot. They're standing before the throne, and books, lots, multiple books, are opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's tons of books over here, and then there's one singular book over here, the book of life. And what happens next? And the dead, all the small and great, were judged by Jesus by what was written in the books, this pile, according to what they had done. You see, that's what those books are. 
records the history of your life, all that you've done. Every single evil deed that's ever been done by a person is right there. It's on display. It has been recorded. It has been declared. And they will be judged according to what they had done. And the sea, this is interesting, and the sea gave up, their de- up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Quick reminder, I had said that it doesn't matter if we're, uh, you know, fall into the sea or burned or something like that. This is a reminder of that. Even the sea, where bodies decay very fast, gives up the dead. Everyone will be standing there. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's when death is finally and ultimately defeated. And so we're in big trouble, right? Because if God were to open the books of all of our deeds and read them, and you and I were to be judged according to our works, none of us would stand. If you're not a believer today, that's what we need you to hear. You, like the rest of mankind, small and great, someday will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you have believed about him in this life, whatever you have said about him, however you've thought about him, you will stand before him as the judge of the universe. And not just that, but he will open a book that has every single deed you have ever done listed out there. And if you are judged according to what you have done, You will perish. You will be separated from him forever. Lake of fire, it says here, that's where the second death is. That's what awaits everyone who is judged according to their works. So how do you get around this? What's the hope? The hope is in verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone who's judged by his works goes to the lake of fire. But how is it that you get around that? Don't be judged by your works. If your name is in the book of life, you are not judged according to your works. You are the redeemed of God. How then? How do you get your name in that book? And the answer goes right back to verse 24, or 25, right where we started today. And this is our fourth observation. Those who hear will, what's the word? Live. Those who hear will live. They'll be written in the book of life. Hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, not just hear the words of Jesus like anyone can if they hear the word uh, read out loud, not just the voice of Jesus like those Pharisees standing right there hearing his voice with hatred in their hearts. Those who hear will live. And look what Jesus says here. This is incredible. And uh, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. How does that work? Jesus is not referring to the basis of salvation, but the evidence of it. Why? How do we know this? Because our evil deeds are no longer counted against us. If God does not open up that book of judgment, look at your works to determine if you're righteousness or not. If he doesn't look in that book of all of your evil deeds, all he sees in you is the righteousness of Christ. That's how it works. Not being judged according to your works, you are the ones that only the good is counted on your behalf. And how do you get that? Hear and believe. 
At his first coming, Jesus went to the cross to die for the sins of everyone who will ever believe in him. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the death that you should have died, he takes for you. And the life that he earned by his perfection of living, you get as a reward. You get all of his righteousness. You get his gift of eternal life. And all you need for that exchange to happen is believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And now your evil deeds will not be counted against you. Your works will not be counted against you. This is why you will be able to be referred to, like the New Testament does, as perfected. Because your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. When God sees a believer, when Jesus looks as he's sitting there on the white throne of judgment, and he sees a redeemed person stand before him, I think everybody will be present for this, as it says. And he goes to turn to the book of the deeds. Wait, this one's name is in the book of life. Praise be to God, eternal life is yours. No reading of that book of works. This is the great and good gift. This is what Jesus said even earlier in John 3. He already established this. He said in verse 20 and 21, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. That's not hard to understand, right? You hate the light, you don't want your works to be exposed. You're the one, that, that guy there is one of the evil ones who will be counted according to his works and judged according to his works and found wanting. Verse 21 keeps going. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What we need is to hear the voice of Jesus. You've heard the expression, nothing lasts forever. People do. People last forever. It will exist somewhere for forever. We must take our faith seriously. We must let this motivate missions in the hearts of believers, that we would be bold with the proclamation of the gospel, praying that it would come into the ears of people as the voice of the Son of God and not our own. Because our only hope is faith in Jesus Christ. That all of our sins can have been dealt with at the first coming of Christ instead of having to be dealt with at the second coming. I'm going to go ahead and pray to close our time this morning, and we're going to turn our attention to communion. Communion is a reminder all over again that Christ's broken body and his shed blood is the way at which we can have peace before God. That's how we can have peace. Not because of any good deeds that we've accomplished and we've done, but because of the finished work of Christ. And if you believe that, then you're a believer. You're a Christian, and so you're welcome to participate with us in this proclamation that it is only because of his death that I can have peace with God. I'm going to go ahead and pray, and when I say amen, you can come on forward Grab the double stack of cups here with the, both the elements together. Bring them back to your seats. Uh, and then we're going to just sing a line together. And then we're going to uh, just, uh, I'm going to come up and we're going to take the elements together as one big church community, okay? So let me go ahead and pray for our communion time and you can come grab the elements. Father, we are so grateful that Jesus came once to die for sins. He will come again for judgment. Father, all justice will be dealt with. Father, while we are deserving of punishment, we have been provided salvation by the perfections of Christ Jesus. The punishment due for our sins have been laid upon him. And because of our faith in him, we are not counted according to our works, but according to his perfect works. Our punishment is not outstanding that it needs to be dealt with in eternity, but our punishment has been paid for in a perfect Christ on the cross. 
Thank you for that truth. And Lord, let us celebrate it as we take of these elements this morning as a church, remembering that we have peace with you because of what Jesus has accomplished and not because of what we have done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.